Please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 through 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zaphon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them and against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand before the sea, 
that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and their horsemen. Of all, of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground go, through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. This is God's word. invite you to keep your Bibles open to Exodus 14. We'll look at the tail end of 13 as well. And let's pray together. Lord, what a privilege it is to be able to open your word with the confidence that you are speaking. There's no question, no insecurity that when your word is read, your voice is heard. And so we pray, Lord, that we would have ears to hear it this morning, uh, that your spirit would be at work in every heart here, uh, opening our eyes to see you, uh, giving us ears to hear you, and that your spirit would be changing our hearts as we look into your word together. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we live in today what is hands down the most safety conscious time in history in probably the most safety conscious part of the world. Uh, it might be more accurate to describe it as safety obsessed. We obsess over these things. We drive the safest cars on the planet with the safest tires that can be manufactured while our kids ride in booster seats with five-point harnesses surrounded by airbags on every side, we can monitor our security systems at home from a smartphone. It's not enough for our kids to wear a helmet when they go. They, they have to have the knee pads and the elbow pads and the wrist guards, especially if they're going to ride bike or something crazy like that. We now have safe spaces on college campuses in case you encounter an offensive idea. We are obsessed with safety. Safety first. That's, that's today's motto. And sometimes I scoff at this. Uh, you know, go through the, the stories, the ritual stories with my children. You know, we never wrote, wore helmets when we rode bikes when we were kids. It wasn't even required by law to wear seat belts when I was a child. Uh, we, I remember climbing around in the back of the station wagon on road trips. And uh, I'm not even sure if my parents ever used car seats. I don't know. Never saw one. So I scoff at these things, and then uh, my kids climb into the car, and I'm all like, everybody got their seatbelts on? <laughs> Not putting this thing in gear till those things click, you know. And, and, you know, Chloe probably thought that her name was careful until she was three. Because, <laughs> careful, careful, what are you doing? Be careful, you know. So, so I'm as guilty as the next person. But even Christians can be obsessed with safety. Uh, you know, we 
pray for safety whenever we travel. When someone goes on a missions trip, one of the most frequent prayers is for safety. Sometimes the prayer for safety dominates the prayer that God would actually do something through the missions trip. When trial happens or tragedy strikes, we pray for the end of that trial or tragedy, for healing, for health, for a new job, for a change in circumstances, which isn't bad, except when we assume that the only purpose of hardship is to get on the other side of it. That's often what our prayers suggest. And again, there's nothing wrong with praying for safety, being, you know, taking precautions, uh, longing for a change in circumstances. Absolutely. But what if there's more to life or to following God than self-preservation? What if by focusing on or fearing the difficult circumstances in front of us, we end up missing the bigger and more beautiful picture of who God is and what He's actually doing? One of the greatest mistakes that we can make in our understanding and experience of God's salvation is to confuse salvation with self-preservation. Salvation with self-preservation. To think that God's whole agenda in creating and saving us is to keep us from harm, to rescue us from trouble or trial, to give us our best life now, free from difficulty, and most of all, free from all suffering. To make us happy and safe. As though losing our life would destroy us, or receiving our best life now would satisfy us. And perhaps one of the clearest pictures of that difference between salvation and self-preservation is found in our passage this morning in God's great defeat of Egypt and deliverance of Israel at the Red Sea. One of the most iconic stories of the Old Testament. Now, if you're just joining us, we've been uh, working our way through Exodus for a few months, uh, watching and beholding God's faithfulness and power and mercy on display. God has come down to deliver his people from generations of slavery in Egypt. And he's done it in such a way that leaves no question as to who's really in charge, who really has authority, not just over his own people, but over the entire world. In chapter 12, we saw the climax of God's saving work when he delivered his people out of Egypt, but also from his own wrath against sin. If you'll remember a few weeks ago, we looked at that Israel needed not merely to be saved from Egypt, they needed to be saved from, from God's judgment of sin, because when he worked to judge Egypt's sin, Israel was just as guilty. And so they needed a substitute. They needed a sacrifice that would take the penalty they deserved as God poured out his wrath on the firstborn son. And so the Passover lamb died in place of Israel, the firstborn son. And that's something God wanted Israel never to forget. And so he gave, he instituted three new rituals for the life of Israel. And we looked at those last week. And so they've been, they're out of Egypt, but they're not yet out of harm's way. The next morning, they, they after the 
10th plague and the Passover. They, they left Egypt and chapter 12, 37 tells us the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. So you're talking about at least a million people. A mixed multitude also went up with them. So Egyptians and others who decided, I'm with them. I'm not with, with those guys over there. I'm, I'm, with, I'm, on, I'm with them. Very much livestock, both flocks and herds. But they're not yet out of harm's way. So even though the death blow was already dealt to Egypt through the 10th plague, they have, Egypt has not yet surrendered to God or been fully destroyed. And, and so there's one final battle to be fought on their escape. If you think of it in terms from World War II, you can think of the Passover as being D-Day, the, the day that the victory for Israel was sealed. And yet, V-E Day has not yet happened. The, the head has been cut from the serpent, but the, he's still flailing and angry and very dangerous. And, and that's where Israel finds themselves in their journey. But as we're going to see, God's goal in saving Israel is not merely to change their circumstances or to rescue them from harm. His goal is to demonstrate his incomparable glory and power. That's his goal. Now, he cares about the well-being of his children, obviously. He wouldn't be rescuing them from Egypt if he didn't. But there's something much bigger at play than Israel's self-preservation. God is getting his glory over Pharaoh in Egypt. He is showing his glory to Israel. And so he orchestrates this final act of salvation in such a way that only he can receive the glory. No one else can take credit for what's about to happen. God writes the plan. God does the work. And God gets the credit. He saves his people in order to demonstrate his incomparable glory and power. And so we'll start by looking at the plan in chapter 13, 17 through 14, 4. God writes the plan. So chapter 13 ends by emphasizing God's guiding presence with his people. As they leave Egypt, there's no mistake, he's the one who's leading them. And he's doing it in a rather miraculous way. Verse uh, 21, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. You know, it's hard to exactly picture what that would have looked like, but it's unmistakable. God is present with his people to guide them. He is with them and he's leading them. But notice he doesn't lead them in a straight line or down the shortest path. So, so we know from earlier in the story that their ultimate destination is Canaan, the, the land that God promised to give Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob. Uh, he's told us this several times, but, but they don't go straight there. God takes them on the scenic route. Verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, just kind of skirting right around uh, the Mediterranean. He didn't take them on the shortest route. Well, why not? 
for two reasons. First, in order to protect them from themselves, from the temptation to merely preserve their lives instead of enjoy God's salvation. The temptation to turn back when the road gets hard. Verse 18, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. The land that God is giving Israel isn't exactly vacant. And, and he's going to use Israel to drive out the idolatrous inhabitants that, that it might be their home. But God knows how tempting self-preservation can be. And so in the event that, that they decide that serving Pharaoh is better than risking war and they want to turn around, he, he makes that hard. He takes them on the long route. So that's one reason for the detour. The second and more significant reason is, is what we read in chapter 14. How God is luring Pharaoh to his final defeat. So chapter 14, verse 1. Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of... John did this so beautifully. Pi Haherot in between Migdol and the sea in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. And they did so. So God writes the plan for Israel's salvation. And it involves not just changing their circumstances, but demonstrating his power and glory. He guides Israel on what must have felt like a wild goose chase for a while. You know, they're just kind of, where are we going? Uh, God's the one who leads them. God's the one who hardens Pharaoh's heart into pursuing Israel and finally meeting his fate. He writes the plans. And they're not always the plans that we would write. Uh, if you think about, just in our own lives, some of the unexpected journeys that we take in life. Who among us would choose to lose their home? or their job, or our health, or our family. I mean, there's so much of what constitutes daily life that none of us would choose. None of us would have written that plan. If Israel had written the plan, it would have been the shortest route and the path of least resistance. Just get us there safely. That's what they would have chosen. They certainly would not have planned a path that would pin them between Pharaoh and the Red Sea with nowhere to go. That's not the route they would have chosen. But God never gives wrong directions. God never gives wrong directions. It's not like you know Moses' GPS lost signal in the wilderness and it's constantly recalculating, and so they're just going in circles waiting for the satellite to work or something. God wrote the plan. And the path that he leads us down doesn't always make sense and, and isn't always the one we would choose, but it is always the one that will bring him the most glory. That we can be sure of. It is always the one that will bring him the most glory, that will show his incomparable worthiness and power in ways we would have never guessed. 
which also means that it's the path that will bring us the greatest good, too. Because it's in God's glory, in enjoying and trusting and depending and being satisfied in Him for who He is as our incomparably worthy God. That's where we find our greatest good as His children. That's what will truly satisfy and last forever. And so God writes the plan. God writes the plan. Second, God does the work. God does the work, verses 5 to 29. As one author describes, when the Bible talks about salvation, God is the key, the center, the prime actor. And that's precisely what we see in this next section, that God is the prime actor in Egypt's defeat and Israel's salvation. So in verses 5 to 9, we see that God's plan to entice Pharaoh to pursue Israel to finally bring an end to them for their uh, oppression and sin, uh, that the plan works. Verse 5, when, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this we've done that we've let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with the officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Not only does he pursue them, but then in verse 9, he overtakes them. Egypt catches up, and Israel freaks out. And And here, in verses 10 to 14, we have one of the clearest windows into that difference between Israel's understanding of salvation and God's actual purpose in salvation. The difference between being saved and and preserving self. Israel sees Egypt marching after them, and they feared greatly, verse 10. And to be completely fair... You cannot fault them for this. It looks like the entire plan has just fallen apart. And we finally got out of Egypt and we're marching along and all of a sudden here they come. And you know, so it makes complete sense. I think all of us would have probably freaked out just as bad. Uh, the plan has failed. That's what it looks like. And so they cry out to the Lord and they say to Moses in verse 11, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. If salvation is merely about safety, about self-preservation, then Israel has a point. This doesn't look like the safe route. It would have been far safer to have stayed put in Egypt. I've been sure they'd still be enslaved and oppressed and beaten and stripped of dignity and subject to the angry and insecure whims of a tyrant, but better than dying in the wilderness. But if we remember, it's not just about 
safety. It's about who you serve. Notice, notice their language again. Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. That's not how life's supposed to work. God says to Pharaoh, Israel's my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. Something much bigger is happening than just Israel's safety. They've confused salvation with safety, with self-preservation. And the reason, if we look closely at the text, the reason that they've gotten so mixed up about this is because of what they are focused on. So notice the emphasis on what Israel sees in this paragraph. In verses 10 to 14, the imagery of seeing is repeated several times. It's emphasized. So, verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people lifted their eyes and beheld the Egyptians marching after, and they feared greatly. Israel focuses on their circumstances rather than on the God who saves, and they respond with fear. Contrast that to Moses's response in verse 13. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, those guys you're focused on now, you will never see them again. They're focused on the wrong thing. Don't focus on the problem. Focus on God, your Savior. This isn't just about getting out of a bind. This is about beholding the incomparable power and glory of the Lord. And Israel has been given a front row seat. When we focus on and fear the the difficult circumstances in front of us, we risk missing that bigger picture, that more beautiful picture of who God is and what he's doing. Saving a people for his glory. We, we get fixated on our own well-being, on our own sense of, of what we want or think we need in life. And, and then when we fixate on that, we fear the loss of that. And that's what consumes us. But God is so much bigger. He's so much bigger than what we think we want or know we want. He's so much more worthy and so much more satisfying. And we will see that if we focus not on the situation, but on our God. And he's orchestrated uh, the situation here in such a way that there is no question about who does the saving or deserves the credit. Israel has been led to the edge of, of the sea and, and Pharaoh and his army is, is bearing down on them at their heels. There's nowhere to go. They can't turn around. They can't go around the sea. They are completely out of luck. They're toast. That's what it looks like. There's nothing that they can do. But there's nothing that they need do. And that is the whole point. God is the one who fights this battle. It's not on Israel's shoulders. Moses says in verse 14, The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Sit back and watch God work. That's what they need to do. 
Israel contributes nothing to their salvation. God writes the plan. God does the work. God gets the credit. And we see his work unfold in in verses 15 to 29. Not even this massive body of water is an obstacle to God. Now, there's some discussion of, of which body of water he's actually talking about here. Should this be translated the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds? And, uh, you know, where exactly is it at? And without getting into the details of that, uh, the best scholarship suggests that this is what we traditionally know as the Red Sea, which would be uh, probably the Gulf of Suez part of it in between uh, modern-day Egypt and Saudi Arabia today. It's an impossible situation. But God is bigger than the impossible. And so he tells Moses what to do. Verse 16, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. It gives Moses the instructions, and that's exactly what happens. God runs coverage for them with the pillar of cloud and fire, uh, keeping Egypt at bay until that moment uh, of, of the parting of the sea. And Moses does it. Verse 21, he stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. Not only is that miraculous, it reminds us of another passage in Scripture, doesn't it? When God divides water from water and dry land appears. That's language of creation from Genesis 1. And it's an unmistakable parallel. The picture here is of a new birth of God's people, a new creation, a new start. God is dividing the waters. Dry land appears. His people go through. And then as Israel passes through in safety, Egypt follows only to meet their doom. The creation divisions undone and chaos falls back upon them. The chariot wheels get clogged. The soldiers get trapped until God tells Moses to stretch out his hand once more and send the sea crashing down. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. God got his glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. He demonstrated in no uncertain terms, his supreme glory and power. Pharaoh does not have the authority or the power to steal God's children and make them his own slaves. God is God, not Pharaoh. And there's no question left now. He wrote the plans. He did the work. And now he gets all the credit. And that's the third thing we see in the story, that God alone gets the credit for saving Israel. He saves his people in order to demonstrate his incomparable glory and power. So look at the conclusion in verses 30 and 31. Thus, the Lord saved Israel 
that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. There's only one person who gets the credit for what happened on that day, and it's Yahweh, it's the Lord. And Israel finally sees that. Remember again their problem back in verse 10, that they were focused on the situation, on the problem, and they feared greatly. And Moses told them instead, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord that he'll work today. So verse 31 tells us Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians. And so the people feared the Lord. They didn't fear their situation anymore. Instead, they turned in reverent worship and dependence. They gave their fear to God instead of fearing the world. They believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. When we focus on our circumstances, on getting out of a hard situation... Um, that's very often when salvation becomes self-preservation for us. And it often reveals that we're actually putting our hope in what this life can give us as though losing our life would destroy us or gaining it would satisfy us. And for some of us, that's all we have if we don't have Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, if you haven't trusted your life to Christ, then the loss of this life is the loss of everything. And gaining as much as you can in the few days you have is the best hope you have. It's the best you can hope to do. Which means that every trial, every setback, and every tragedy is something you cannot help but fear. And must therefore clamor to escape. But for the Christian, it's different. Because we have one who has gone before us and done for us what we could never do for ourselves. God does the saving work. We have one who has taken not only our hardship and trials and tragedies, the stuff, but but also the suffering and trials of the entire world, including all of our sin against a holy God, Jesus has taken all of that weight of evil and sin and made it his own, that he might bear it in our place and make all things new. And that wasn't easy. You know, when... When Christ prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, the night he was betrayed, the enemy was at his heels, and there was an unpassable sea before him, the cross. There was no going around it. There was only one way forward, and it was through it. And he could have run. He could have said, I'm done with this. He could have crumpled in fear. In fact, he prayed to his father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Is there any other way? 
and forward. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He fixed his eyes on his father because he knew God had written the plan. And that God doesn't give wrong directions. And so for the joy that was set before him, what was on the other side, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He parted death's sea and went through giving his life for us as the true and better Passover lamb who dies in place of God's children. And then rising from the dead on the third day in order to secure for us what Peter describes as an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So we cannot save ourselves. We cannot. Any more than Israel could have gotten themselves out of that predicament. But we need not. And that's the point. We need not because God has done the work of salvation for us through his eternal son, Jesus. He wrote the plan. He does the work. And therefore, he gets the credit. There's not a single one of us here who can boast in the fact that we're a Christian. We didn't do the work. God does the work. We, we get the benefit. That ought to make us humble, not proud. And that ought to result in worship and giving glory to God, not stealing glory for ourselves. And so taking our eyes off of our situation, as hard as that is, as impossible as that often feels, especially when you are backed against the wall and the whole world seems to be falling in on you. When we take our eyes off the situation and put them instead on our Savior, not only does that deliver us from fear, it recalibrates our entire perspective on life. It changes the way we see things. It reminds us that this life is not all that there is to the story. That in Christ... There is nothing that this world can take from us that is able to destroy us. Our money, our stuff, our health, our friends and our family, even our life. God is the one who saves and who therefore has the power and authority to keep us forever. Nothing in this world can take that away. Jesus says in John 10, I give them eternal life. I do it. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. In Christ, there is nothing this world can take from us that is able to destroy us. Focusing on our Savior reminds us of that. It also reminds us that there's nothing in this world, nothing this world can give to us that will truly satisfy. And so we need not fear the loss. 
as the psalmist saying, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's only one thing that can satisfy our hearts or anchor our souls or ground our identity or or secure our future or give us significance or give us everlasting life. Only one thing, and that is God himself. And to find our all in God, that is to magnify his glory. That is to treat him the way he deserves to be treated, recognizing that he is far better, far more beautiful, far more satisfying than anything, any of this other stuff. When we glorify God most, we are being satisfied in him. As John Piper has famously put it, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, when we look to nothing else for life but to him. Nothing in this world can compare to that. And so if he's riding the route that's going to give him the most glory, we want on board with that, even if it doesn't make sense. Because it's his glory that is our greatest good. And finally, focusing on our Savior reminds us that there is nothing that happens under heaven that does not accord to God's sovereign and mysterious plan. Even the hard things. And that changes the way that a Christian suffers. God did not slip off of his throne when Egypt caught up to Israel. It's not like he was, you know, checking his email real quick and almost went off the road. He isn't caught off guard when our lives fall apart either. And though we wouldn't choose it and don't really like it, If we've been through it, we have to admit that it's actually the hard situations that remind us the most of how salvation is bigger than just getting out of a bind. It's seeing God at work when all earthly hope is lost. That's when we see his glory displayed most clearly And that's when our hearts overflow the the most in faith and worship. Instead of fear and self-preservation. God saves his people to demonstrate his glory and power. It's no mistake that that Israel's response to being saved in chapter 14. Like, Look ahead at chapter 15. What are they doing there? Look at your Bibles. What do they do next? They sing. They break out into worship and song. God saves his people for his glory and they get that. They've been saved and the next thing they do is glorify God. God never gives wrong directions. The path doesn't always make sense and it is rarely the one we would choose but it is always the one that will bring him the most glory, which is also our greatest good. That was Israel's experience at the Red Sea. That was Jesus' experience before the cross. 
It will be true of anything God's children face in this fallen world. Just because we don't always get it doesn't mean he's not at work. And so when you find yourself with the Red Sea before you and Egypt at your heels, look to your Savior. To him who's gone before you and who reigns sovereignly over you. Look to the cross and the resurrection and remember the words of Moses. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Let's pray. Lord, we want to see you. We want to see your salvation. Lord, we praise you that in Christ we see it most clearly. That the definitive act of deliverance has been accomplished. That, that all the powers of hell, all the evil of this fallen world has been broken, has been defeated decisively. That Christ reigns victorious and that in him our future is secure and our God is present. We know that's true, God. We pray that you would help us believe it and focus on it as we live out our days in this fallen world. Continuing to face trial and hardship. Give us the faith we need to know that your directions are good and that your glory will be displayed, that your gospel is at work. Let us see glimpses of that salvation that we might fix our eyes on you and not on the problems in front of us because we want you to get the glory you deserve. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.